A quick note, this is a 10-part chronological docuseries. We recommend starting at Chapter 1. And for the best immersive listening experience, headphones are suggested. In November of 1970, Commander Everett Alvarez had been in captivity for six years, and Captain Red McDaniel for four. They had endured near-death torture, disgusting conditions, being cut off from friends and family, and the feeling of not knowing what their futures held. Hope was not quite lost, but it was diminishing. Meanwhile, a mission was brewing in the United States military. 56 soldiers were about to be tasked with something that could change the course of the war and change history. One of those soldiers was 20-year-old Terry Buckler, the youngest of those 56. I never dreamed of ever being into a situation that I was placed in. That was the furthest thing from my mind that I would ever be involved in such an operation as the Sante Raid. In this chapter of Captured, you'll find out what was going on immediately outside the prison camp walls and how the rescue attempt impacted our heroes, Everett Alvarez and Red McDaniel. This is the story of the Sante Raid, the most ambitious rescue attempt amidst the POW crisis. From the Richard Nixon Presidential Library, this is Captured, shot down in Vietnam. My name is Terry Buckler. I was in the military from 1969 to 1972. I was drafted into the military, and that was back when they still had the draft. During the Vietnam War era, between 1964 and 1973, the U.S. military drafted 2.2 million American men out of an eligible pool of 27 million. When Terry joined up in 1969, the draft was in full effect as the military sought to replenish its ranks, casting a wide net and indiscriminately selecting men for compulsory duty based on a lottery system. Draftees accounted for 30% of all combat deaths in Vietnam. Stopped in one day to see where I was on the draft list and they said it would probably be April. And that was in the end of February. And I said, well, when's the next slot going? She said, March. I said, put me on it. So I volunteered for the draft. You know, I was 18 years old, knew everything. And uh, I found out I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. I'll never forget we had a, I was a squad leader when I was in basic. We were cleaning our weapons and shining our boots one night. I made the mistake of calling my weapon a gun and the DI was in there, he immediately told me to drop and start doing push-ups, and I did 100 push-ups. I did the 100th one on my right hand and the 101st one on my left hand. And he decided that from there on, I was gonna do something other than push-ups. Joe Sergeant Dunham was a, a Vietnam veteran, and 
I was always get up with a smile on my face. And one day he said, I'm going to wipe that smile off your face. I said, yes, Sergeant Major, that's fine. And he never did, though. My dad served in World War II. I'll never forget when he took me to the bus station to get on the bus to go to Kansas City. He said, whatever you do, don't volunteer for anything. Three days after being inducted into the military, I raised my hand to volunteer for the Green Beret. So I I really did not listen too well to him. In his book about the raid, called Who Will Go, Terry remembers his father as a laid-back, hardworking man. After returning from his own tour of duty in World War II, Terry's dad had saved up and rented a 200-acre farm in small-town Missouri, where Terry and his two brothers grew up. Working the land day after day to make ends meet, Terry credits his work ethic and can-do attitude to the example his father set for him. After volunteering for Special Forces, it cost me an extra year, but I felt like if I was going to Vietnam, I wanted to go with the best, and I did. The guys that were on the mission were icons in Special Forces, and just a bunch of great guys that looked out for one another as well. I knew what Special Forces Green Berets were, but I didn't know that much about them. I knew they were the elite group at that time. There was no Delta Force, and the Navy SEALs weren't quite that as popular as they were back then. Members of the U.S. Army Special Forces, colloquially known as Green Berets, are handpicked, rigorously trained, and honed to perfection. These masters of unconventional warfare were tasked with carrying out daring missions behind enemy lines, conducting reconnaissance, raids, and sabotage with surgical precision. The Green Beret were a, a good elite group. They have their own desire to push themselves, that desire to be the best. I was in Special Forces about a little less than a year, I guess. The call came out on Smoke Bomb Hill, which is the home of Special Forces, for Bull Simons, who was like John Wayne of military at that time, was looking for volunteers for a moderately hazardous mission, he called it. When John Wayne actually met Bull Simons, John Wayne said, you make a better John Wayne than I do. I have very little compassion. None of that. Not a damn ounce of it. That's Colonel Bull Simons himself. You'll hear more from him in this episode, from an interview he recorded in 1974. Because of its age, the quality isn't the best, but his recollection of the Sante raid is fresh. Again, headphone listening is recommended. Everybody that knew the Bull knew his reputation, but he was still just a pretty much down-to-earth guy about it. It was uh, quite a quite an honor. Here's Bull describing how he came to be in charge of the operation. The idea originated with the intelligence people. They looked at it and said, okay, here's some isolated camps. We wonder, is it possible to maybe get somebody out of it? So they queried the Pentagon, you know, the Joint Chiefs, what do you think? Well, it is isolated because there's no real high-speed approach from Hanoi, even though you're very close to it. Distance doesn't make any difference. It's time that makes difference. How long will it take them to get there and how long will it take you to do it? That's what isolates it from a tactical point of view. The guy I worked for said, Jesus, where the hell are you going here? I said, listen, I said, let me run this thing, will you? I said, this way they'll get a colonel. Let's don't get a, a brigadier general mixed up in it. 
I said, just let me run it. I want to be the guy with the authority and I want all the responsibility. Initially, when they did the selection process at Fort Bragg, I would say that there was probably 1,500 guys showed up to hear what Bull Simons had to say. My feeling has always been, well, you're in this business, this is what you do for a living, and it is very obvious that you can get killed or anything less than that because somebody's going to get killed. And you have to take that risk because your career isn't worth prostituting yourself doing anything else. And so you have to accept that. I believe that's the way you operate. That's all there is to it. They probably went through about 500 other guys and did the interviews. And out of the interview process, out of that 500, they selected 109 of us. I was a Buck Sergeant E5, which is the lowest rank in Special Forces. I was more or less private, even though I had sergeant stripes. I volunteered for that, was selected as part of the uh, advanced party. Went to Eglin Air Force Base, and from Eglin Air Force Base, we trained for three months, an hour before we left. We told what our mission was and what we were going to do that night. And things got hairy from there on out. You heard that right. Throughout their three months of intense training, these elite military men had no idea what they were actually training for. It was top secret. There could be no leaks. I said, if you can get us in there safely, I said, this thing is a piece of cake because we will have complete tactical surprise if there is no leak. If they know we're coming, they'll knock those birds down. What do you think it was about you at the time? You know, 20, you were 20, right? Yes. You, were, you were 20, mm-hmm. you, were, you were basically a private, like you said, not necessarily yes. in, in rank, but basically. And they narrowed it down from 1,500 of the best soldiers there are, and they picked you as one of them. Why? After the we had returned, I sent an email to Dan asking him, you know, why, why did you select me? Because it was his final choice to say yay or nay on me. He basically said that whatever I was asked to do, I just did it with a smile and on my face and no no back talk or anything, just went and did whatever I was asked to do and did it with the best of my ability. And just that can-do attitude was something I think that uh, was instilled in me as my father. He always said, if you're gonna do something, do your, do your best at it. And that was part of Growing up, I always believed in that. So, and that's carried through into the military. Plus he said if I had, he had to be carried out, he knew I could pick him up and carry him. If you haven't gathered from that comment or the fact that Terry did his 99th and 100th punishment push-up on one arm, the young soldier was a beast. Terry might not say it plainly, but his pure strength and physique definitely helped him get selected. Now, let's hear what the men went through, preparing for the unknown mission. We operated 24 by 7, and most of our, 80% of our training was done at night. One of the things we did uh, was build the mock-up for the compound. We didn't know what it was. We were just putting two-by-fours in the ground and wrapping it with targets. So you built the jail, like you built the the compound that you were going to eventually raid without knowing that's what you were building. 
Exactly. Yeah. That's, wow. Uh, we had no idea what we were we were building. So we were told to, you know, do this and do that. We did it, and uh, we later, as we moved into the training aspects, we started realizing it was some type of compound, but we didn't know where or what. We trained for three months, all kind of exercises, the loading the chopper. We started off just walking through the process. And then as we gained our skill set, we would run through it. And then about the second month, we brought in the choppers. And so we would practice loading the chopper, you know, unloading the chopper to go through, determining, you know, what who, who gets off the chopper first, what direction do they run, and in protecting the, the troops getting off as well. So we did over 177 rehearsals. When we left Fort Bragg, they told us to pack our bag and we're leaving. Pulled us into a hangar, took us, unloaded us. The plane was in the hangar. We loaded the C-141, which flew from there into Takli. Once we got to Takli Air Force Base, they loaded us up in like what looked like bread trucks, you know, they were closed in and everything, took us to the base, to the camp, the CIA camp, unloaded us, and we were in there for about three or four days, but we had no communications with anybody or anything coming in and out. You know, we just sitting around doing nothing. We were getting kind of yancy. They uh, had a lunch for us, and we had steaks for lunch, which should have been a little clue to us. That night, we were told to meet in, we called it the auditorium. It was basically just bleachers with no backs to them, you know, just hard tuba tins you sat on. We were told to be in there 1,800 hours, and the bull and Colonel Sidnor told us where we were going. Colonel Simons come on stage, and it was a little raised stage. And they pulled down this big map of North Vietnam. They had a big red circle around Hanoi. And then up a little further, they had another big circle around Sante. Bull Simons said, gentlemen, he says, uh, this is what we're going to do tonight. We're going to rescue our 60 to 70 POWs in a camp called Sante, which is about 23 miles northwest of Hanoi. I said, there's one other thing I want to tell you. I said, these guys are Americans. It doesn't make any difference whether they got blue suits on or brown suits on or green suits on or what they got. They're entitled to feel that their own goddamn countrymen will make an effort at getting them out. And by God, that's why we're going to get them out. And it got dead silent. So, I mean, you could heard a pin drop in there when he said that, you know, and that lasted for about five seconds. And these guys all stood up and started to clap their hands. Everybody just jumped up and started slapping each other on the back saying, let's go get them. We were pinned up, ready to go. To have the opportunity to go in and rescue POWs was just, who dreamed that up was a good idea. But then he kind of calmed us down. He said, okay, gentlemen, he says, I just want to make sure this is strictly a volunteer mission. And there's an opportunity here, but there's also a chance that 50% of us won't make it back. I wondered how you could ask a 25-year-old, 30-year-old sergeant to get in a position where there was a fairly good chance that uh, he wouldn't be back home again. 
Bull is known for getting guys into hot spots and getting them back safely. So we put a lot of faith in him, knowing that uh, he was going to be on the ground with us. I mean, you don't at the time he was 54. You don't see too many uh, old bird colonels on the ground in combat like that. I thought I got much too much credit for it in the press. You're one of 52 guys. After we had the hoorah and all that, told us to go back to our barracks, take care of our odds and ends, and meet in the, all of our equipment was in this one hangar, our weapons and radios and everything we needed. So we went over there, loaded that up, got on a C-130 and flew from there to U-Dorn. Our choppers were already on the tarmac, and we went to our chopper. And so we we knew we were leaving at 6, and we had about a three-and-a-half-hour flight from U-Dorn into Sante. So that was, a, that was a long, long flight, knowing what we were doing and where we were going and uh, what the chances of not making it back. We got detailed each element. There were three elements, red wine, green leaf, and blue boy. Blue boy's job was to have a forced crash landing inside the compound. The planners, and we had the best planners you could ask for, they didn't know what the guards were told to do if there was an attempted rescue, whether it would be to assassinate the POWs or run. So they felt like we had to have control of the guards. They neutralized the guards inside the compound, and then they started doing the search for POWs. While that was taking place, Greenleaf and Redwine, which were the other two choppers, Greenleaf had the assault. I had more, had about 22 guys on that bird, and there was only 56 of us. We were getting ready to set down, and that's when I heard alternate plan green. I had heard that before in training and what that meant was plan and we didn't know exactly all we knew that Greenleaf was not going to be involved in the attack and what that also meant that we were 22 guys short and those guys had quite a bit of firepower on that bird. Things were going to get hairy here real quick. So I turned to Dan Turner as soon as I had it. I said, Dan, we're going to plan green. And he looked at me like, oh shit, you know, we got a what? And I said, now, he said, are you sure? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, pass it on. So I passed it on down to the next guy and the next guy passed it on. So we knew we were going to plan green. So we became, Red Wine became the assault chopper as well. But we were 22 men short. And about that time, uh, Plan Green also called for our, the minigun on the uh, left-hand side of the chopper was facing the, the guardhouse. We knew where the guards were for, and it opened fire on that you know, building. Now, if you've never heard a minigun go off, they fire 4,000 rounds a minute. And it's, it gets the Parker factor up pretty quick. The difference between our training and what we were doing live in our training, bullets were only going one way, and we were throwing the lead at them. This time, the lead was coming back at us, and that was a whole different game. 
our job, Dan Turner and myself, our job was to get to the communication building as quickly as we could neutralize that so they couldn't communicate to bring in reinforcements. All the lifers, the old guys would come by to me when we were getting our gear back at Tockley and they'd say, Buck, whatever you do, don't hesitate. You don't have time to be frightened. If you're going to get frightened, you get frightened afterwards. You know, you sit down afterwards and say, Jesus Christ, that was bad. And, you know, I, I knew what they meant, but I, I really didn't know what they meant till it happened. When I stepped off, stepping off the chopper following Dan, I thought he was being fired on. And my first reaction was just to eliminate the threat, which I, I did. We moved on, and but that was just, that was my first experience. And I, you know, you, you always question yourself, or I did, you know, would I have the wherewithal to pull the trigger when need to be, or would I freeze, or what, you know, having never been in combat, but was I gonna, I wasn't about to let Dan down or any of my other fellow warriors, but I'm gonna say I wasn't scared, I was frightened. <laughs> which uh, I don't know which one's worse, but uh, I also knew that this had to be done and that was part of the, the training we went through. But there's nothing like live fire to get you pucker factor rolling for you. You also probably didn't even have time to think about what you had just done, that you had just killed no, a man. No, no, you didn't have time to, I mean, because there was others coming too, so and you knew. And, and you had to keep up, I had to keep up with Dan. He had told me during training, he says, I want you a hand away from me or I'll shoot you. And I believed him. <laughs> the first building we cleared, we actually it was the second one where the, we were getting fire from. We had all trained how to clear a building. We'd throw a concussion grenade in and follow it in once it blew and neutralize the people inside the, the building. Concussion grades are designed to really mess you up pretty good. And then we would, Dan would hit, generally what would happen, it would blow the door off. And Dan would lay down, he would just drop to the ground position. And I would swing over him. And so I was, he was between my legs. And he'd start one on the left side and shoot down. I'd start on the right and we'd just do a crossfire. And then we were ordered to neutralize everybody because we were going to have to come back through that same area and we didn't want somebody holding us down. So we made sure that everybody in the building was neutralized and, and that was uh, not a fun thing to do, but that was just part of the training and part of what we were ordered to do and we did it. And then he just moved on to the next building. We had one building, there was nothing in it but a geese and a, a little goat or something in there. But uh, I think the concussion grenade scared them enough that they took off. And just as we got to that building, after clearing a couple other buildings, I heard on the my headset negative items. Now negative items, items was a code word for POWs. And according to what I was hearing, there were no POWs, which was pretty frustrating for us. 
it was just that can't be i mean negative items in fact when bull heard that too he went in and they did a complete check and made sure too that you know there wasn't anybody left behind so we were then ordered to regroup, call our choppers back in, and head south for friendly territory. We started our movement back. We were clear to go, and we lifted up, and we're heading south. You looked out across the lights. You keep in mind we're 23 miles from Hanoi. In Hanoi, it was huge. It was like looking over the lights that you would see of a major city in the United States. So that, that impressed me that that was, that was that large of a city. There was over 116 aircraft involved in the Sante Raid. That was the largest Air Force contingency in the Vietnam War. We flew back into Udorn. It was pretty depressing to know that what we had done for three months of training, we weren't able to bring back the field debuts. The instant impact was one of great disappointment. I was kind of disappointed that it came out the way it did because it was too personal. Always in your mind is, remember, if you don't get these guys out alive, you haven't done anything. I think you know, uh, they were very much emotionally involved in it. And they thought it was a big thing they did, even though it produced nothing. I told them it was a big thing. I told them they didn't have to be ashamed. It, actually, it was several years later, we, we found out that the, the well had gone dry. And that was one of the reasons. And then, because they were rebuilding, they were enlarging the prison at Sante for other POWs to come into. But the ones that were there the night that we landed had been moved over to Camp Faith, which was about six clicks away from us. The mission was, was uh, advantageous, even though there were no men there. The fact there was nobody there had nothing to do with it. They did as good as any commander could have asked of anybody. I, I've never regretted it. Being a part of the Sante Raiders, I've been very blessed to be able to meet some wonderful people. And uh, that has been, been a fun life. Can you talk about reuniting with your parents after you got back? What did your dad say to you specifically? And what did you say to him? Well, my dad and I had a, a beer over it. And, you know, it wasn't eat. You don't talk a lot about it, I guess. You know, I told him I was on the raid and, you know, he was proud of that fact. But at the same time, I didn't go into detail about what I did or anything like that. It just the fact that I was on the Sante raid. My dad, several years afterwards, uh, he had a stroke and I would go up on the weekends and we'd visit him in the hospital. And we talked about what we did in the military. Uh, he had been in combat and knew what it was going to be like. And I, I wish I'd have taped what he had told me, some of the things he'd went through, but I, I didn't. But it was uh, kind of reassuring to know we had a lot in common in that respect. Terry and his dad never spoke much about their wartime experiences with each other. He knew his father had been awarded a bronze star, 
for heroic achievement of great merit in a combat zone, but he never talked about what he had actually done to earn that honor. Tragically, Terry's parents died in a house fire in 1998, their marriage having lasted 58 years. Seeking more details about his dad's time in the service, including the story behind the Bronze Star, Terry ventured to the military center that archived records of servicemen in World War II. In a cruel twist of fate, the documents that would have included info about Terry's dad had been lost in a fire. The Bronze Star mystery remains unsolved, but the life lessons Terry's dad imparted on his son are everlasting. He was a good man and honest and hardworking and loved him a bunch. Though the Sante raid was not successful in bringing home the prisoners, it was, in many ways, a triumph. The North Vietnamese realized that the U.S. government truly meant business and were getting more aggressive in their attempts to free the POWs. The good side of it was once we had the opportunity years later when the POWs were returned, for us to share our experiences with the POWs and vice versa. And we, we discovered that the Sante Raid, the night after the Sante Raid, at that time there were about, oh, probably 12 or 13 camps scattered in. Five of those were in Hanoi and the rest were scattered all from the China border down. So what they did after the raid, they brought all the POWs together from all the outlying camps and put them into the Hanoi Hilton. The beatings quit, they got better food, they got clothing, they got medical care. So things improved tremendously for him. So it was, the raid was well worth the risk. As Captain Red McDaniel explains, the Sante raid did have impact on all POWs, including him personally. In 1968, President Johnson stopped the bombing of North Vietnam north of the 20th parallel. For three years, had no bombers come, just live and let live and then the Sante Raid. That was activity for the first time in three years. Sante had great impact on our being there. It gave us hope that the U.S. is trying something. So we were thrilled about that and we knew it was something major. It had a great impact on the remainder of our treatment. Prior to that time, we would one or two or three men per cell. And after that, they moved us into large cell blocks. They moved us back downtown Hanoi. Within four days, I moved into a cell block with 57 prisoners. It was a small space. We divided it up 57 ways. We had 22 and a half inches by six feet per man for the next three years. But we gained strength moving together like that. Though the Sante Raid made great strides in improving the conditions for our POWs, it would be another three long years of imprisonment until Operation Homecoming became a reality and the brave men would finally find themselves back on American soil. That's next time on the season finale 
of Captured. Captured, Shot Down in Vietnam is a docu-series from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Foundation. Produced by the team at Foundwave and respectfully created in honor of Ross Perot Sr. If you're interested in learning more about Vietnam POWs, you can visit the exhibition Captured at the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, California. Original music compositions, Foley effects, and mastering from Jonathan Rock. Produced and edited by Steph Weaver-Weinberg. Research, background, and history from Jason Schwartz. Executive production from Joe Lopez and the team at the Richard Nixon Foundation and Kaylee Mason from Perot Family Collections. Co-executive production, interviewing, and hosting from me, Tyler Russell McCusker. Find future episodes of this show and bonus content, including archival photos and audio at capturedpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our production, please consider leaving a review and clicking follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.